Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Born into American royalty, Robert E. Lee of Virginia spent his life in the service of the United States of America. Fighting first in Mexico, he was an avid patriot. Upon the beginning of the American Civil War, he raised his staff against his own country and became a living legend in his own time. Long after his death, however, the life of Lee is still debated, as some view him as a hero, while others as nothing more than America's most famous traitor. On this episode, we discuss the contentious life and legacy of Robert E. Lee. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 4 of the series, we're discussing Game Changers, who they are, what they did, and why they still matter. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Kreitzer. You can visit our author's homepage, bradykreitzer.com, and of course your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On today's episode, we're diving into what is for many of us familiar territory, and certainly controversial territory. We're going to discuss historical legacy in terms of one of the most enigmatic, yet still revered figures in American history. I'm talking about Robert E. Lee of Virginia commanding general of the Army of Northern Virginia in the American Civil War. By any standard metric, this is a man who claimed to love his country. This is a man who had serious reservations about secession and civil war. But there's one unavoidable, undeniable fact. This is a man that led a rebellion against the United States Constitution and oversaw the killing of hundreds of thousands of American soldiers. How do we gauge this man? By all accounts, by the definition of the word, he is a traitor to the United States. Treason is his legacy. Yet he's revered across the country, north, south, east, and west, for his actions. This is the heart of an American enigma. There are universities named after the man. There are elementary schools and high schools named after the man. Yet we have this very serious divide, which requires a very serious debate about how we should think of Robert E. Lee. Again, if you go by the textbook definition of what treason is, you could open the book and see a picture of his face. Yet he holds such a special place in the hearts and minds of many Americans. It's very difficult to place him uh, accurately or consistently uh, in the annals of American history. So this episode is going to be dedicated to Robert E. Lee. We're going to talk a little bit about what he does and a lot about who he is. Now, there's a few things about this episode that I was weary of from the beginning, and I'll be very frank with you up front now. What I don't want to do 
And it's very hard not to because he's such an integral part of the American Civil War. Is make this episode a Civil War history discussion. I mean, when you talk about Lee's life, you could go battle to battle and troop maneuver by troop maneuver. And I guess to a degree we have to do that. But what I really want to do here is explore the man. What he feels. What he believes. He was a very expressive man, highly educated. He wrote down a great deal of material. He splits no hairs regarding his feelings toward the time in which he lives. So we're going to talk about Lee in that regard. We will go battle by battle. There's a lot of great Civil War podcasts out there. I'm not trying to infringe on them. But I think to a degree we may have to do that. At any rate, by the end of it, maybe we can start to get the ball rolling, because we certainly won't close the book on Lee and his legacy. So let's set the stage a bit with the world in which Lee lives. Robert E. Lee is born in the year 1807 in the state of Virginia. Throughout colonial history, if you listen to previous seasons of wartime, you know that Virginia was the wealthiest colony in North America. That won't change when it becomes a state. Virginia is long considered to be the cradle of American aristocracy by the time Lee's born. The great uh, Americans, we can say, come from Virginia. Men like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe. I mean, these throughout Lee's life are going to be presidents of the United States. So Virginia holds a very special place in America at the time. It's the center of uh, old money, we can say. But some things are changing in America. One of them is that new money is emerging. And it's emerging as Lee grows up in the West. But when you think about Lee, I want you to think about that previous description that I gave. Old money. He comes from a very wealthy family. His father was uh, Light Horse Harry Lee, hero of the revolution. He's got that legacy. He is, by all accounts, if it existed, American royalty. So right away, Lee will automatically have the, I think, prestige of an upper-class family. As he grows up, as he comes into his own, he'll be looked upon by the people of his state, and eventually of the entire southern region, as one of these really special, important trendsetters in America at the time. So Lee doesn't have a humble beginning. And I think based on this season so far, he may be one of the first people that we can't say that about. Alexander the Great, I suppose, was born to a wealthy family, but everybody else came seemingly out of nowhere. This is not Lee's story. Now, what is the world in which Lee lived? Now, we're going to talk about the American South in the 19th century in a very general way, but I do want to impress upon you the importance of slavery and the slave system in the South during Lee's lifetime, because he will have some interesting views on the matter, and it will certainly be the driving factor to the secession, the rebellion, whatever you want to call it, that will make him famous. If you lived in the American South during the early part of the 19th century, really all the way to the eve of the Civil War, Southerners at the time will downplay the importance of slavery to them. But as historians looking back, reading what they write, looking at the figures, you must understand that slavery is absolutely, positively, a critical part, not only of Southern economy, there's no doubt about that, but of the Southern identity. Economically speaking, think about if you're a business owner, what your single greatest expense is in your business every year, time after time. 
It's paying your workers. And imagine a system economically where you didn't have that obligation. You'd be rolling in money. But you'd also suffer some opportunity costs. One of the things that visitors to the American South will say is that everywhere you go, you have this system that works for them. It's a plantation-based system driven by slave labor. There's really no need for competition in the South, whereas in the North, in England, and other parts of the world, you have innovation occurring through manufacturing. Again, the South has a system that works. It's unchanging. So many visitors to the South, even in Lee's lifetime, would have easily said that the South seemed like it was a generation or two behind the northern part of the United States and the rest of the industrial world. That's part of this story. But also we have to think about the people who were enslaved. I'm going to give you some figures I really want you to think about. I'm not making these up, but I think they're downplayed in the larger narrative of the American Civil War. People love the Civil War. I'll admit it's it's magnetic. It's fascinating to me. Not my professional time period, but I like to say I, I moonlight in this period. The American Civil War is attractive. We like the idea of the finality of the war. Uh, one army wears blue, one army wears gray. You keep score using body counts, and there's always a winner. I mean, that's how we like our battles. And the Civil War is very accommodating for the most part in that regard. Not always. But we can't forget, again, the world that was changed by what was at stake in this war. Think about this. On the eve of the Civil War, about 2% of Southerners actually owned slaves. 2%. That doesn't sound like a lot. But when you think about the concentration of wealth in America today, you're getting about uh, 2% of Americans control over 90% of the wealth. Do you see how that's very possible? When you look at America as a whole on the eve of the Civil War, one out of seven Americans, north, south, east, and west, one out of seven Americans was owned by someone else. They have no human rights. They have no protections. They are chattel. They are property. In some cases, they have as many rights as the chair you're sitting on or the headphones you're listening to. That's a nationwide. If you just look at the South, two out of five people on the eve of the Civil War are slaves. That's 40% of the population. So slavery is no small matter. And in my opinion, it is the root cause of the Civil War. Now that being said, how do we quantify that? Because even at the beginning of the war, Abraham Lincoln, the president, says this war is not about slavery. The best way I've heard it put, and it's by the historian Ransom, says that the Civil War is a solar system. And there's a lot of different planets in that solar system. Economic concerns, social concerns, cultural concerns. But the sun at the center of the solar system, the thing in which everything revolves around in terms of causes of the war, is slavery. And I think that's a really important way to view it. Because a lot of people will, uh, in an effort to, I think, downplay the role of slavery, sometimes try and eliminate it altogether. They'll say the war is about states' rights. And then you say, well, states' rights to do what? And they say, well, own slaves, I guess. And there's your answer. Again, I'm a northerner, I suppose. But I'm not taking a side here. I really don't care about that divide. I mean, the South as we know it, the North as we know it, no longer exists. Uh, I'm not about to fight the political battles of yesterday when we're still fighting the political battles of today. But that's important you understand the role of slavery in this. And Robert E. Lee's family will own a great deal. 
Robert E. Lee lives on a plantation that's been in his family for a very long time called Arlington. It's in Virginia. It's right outside of D.C. You could see the capital from it. And he'll spend his life, until 1861, in the service of that country, the United States of America. Robert E. Lee will go to West Point. That's the American Military Academy. And he will graduate with historic achievement. To this day, he remains the only person to graduate without a single demerit from West Point. And that's no easy feat. You get demerits for everything. Uh, he has a pedigree. That's important. You understand that. And he will dedicate his early life to the American military as a military engineer. Immediately after his graduation, you begin to see hostilities emerge in all places of Mexico. And in 1848, the Mexican-American War begins. Now, why is the Mexican-American War so important? Well, for a lot of history, it really wasn't. And recently, it's sort of been viewed as like the prelude to the Civil War. Because all the great generals of the Civil War are sort of youngster lieutenants in that war, Lee being one of them. In my opinion, however, and this is an aside, the Mexican-American War is going to become extraordinarily important within the next, say, 20 or 30 years. I'd be willing to guess by the year 2048, the Mexican-American War will be considered one of the most important wars in American history, and that's for two reasons. One is because the enormous quantity of land the American states gained from that war, all of the Southwest, New Mexico, Texas, Arizona, Colorado, Utah, California. But the other will be the enormous growing Latino population in America. Again, what happened happened, but our modern politics always change the way we view the past. So I'd be willing to guess, again, by the uh, 200th anniversary, by the year 2048, that war is no longer just the prelude to the Civil War. It's going to be something much more. You heard it here first. But this is where Lee really comes into his own. I mean, whenever the uh, sort of killing blow to the Mexicans is delivered, uh, the capture of Mexico City, the Battle of Chapultepec Castle, uh, it's Robert E. Lee who's sent to capture the city. The general in charge is a man named Winfield Scott. They called him Old Fuss and Feathers. Man, they don't have nicknames like that anymore. But Old Fuss and Feathers Winfield Scott sent Lee to do the job, and he said very famously, uh, and this is a paraphrase, of course. He said, I believe this man is so important to the future of this country that I would insure his life for a million dollars. He's talking about Lee. Little does Winfield Scott know he will lead a rebellion, a secession against that same country and that same constitution in less than two decades. So you have, again, what I'm, what I'm trying to express here is that Lee is a patriot early on in his life. Um, we know him as a resistance figure, but that just isn't the case. And as the as the Civil War begins to heat up, the 1850s emerge, uh, Lee really won't waver in that regard. When we think of the 1850s, we tend to think of the 1850s as nothing more than the 10 years before the Civil War. But the people who lived during that time didn't see it that way. Any more than you know what's going to happen tomorrow, they knew what's going to happen the next day. I mean, the 1850s were a really dynamic time, a lot of changes occurring in America. It'll be like in, say, a hundred years, whenever future generations will look at the 1990s as nothing more than that 10 years before 9-11. I mean, I think that's a very good comparison. 
But those of us who lived through the 90s knew it was much more than just the 10 years before 9-11. It was everything that made the 90s weird and great. It was, it was Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. It was, uh, it was Nirvana. Uh, it was Furbies. Uh, it was Ross and Rachel. The 90s had a lot to it. It was more than that. And that's how these people saw the 1850s. But in the 1850s, slavery was a major issue. By the end of the 1850s, a radical zealot, anti-slave zealot, named John Brown, will take his, uh, I think you can say, his obsession with eliminating slavery uh, toward a terroristic means. He'll kill five people in Kansas, uh, slave owners, and then he'll amazingly try to capture the American arsenal, the federal arsenal, at Harper's Ferry. The idea that Brown had, and again, not to get too much into this because it's been, been there, done that in a lot of cases, the idea that Brown had was to get slaves to escape their plantations in Virginia, meet at Harper's Ferry, arm them, and create a slave republic in what is today the mountains of West Virginia. It failed. It failed because uh, at Harper's Ferry, John Brown and his men were surrounded and defeated by the U.S. Army, led by none other than Robert E. Lee himself. So again, you have this sense that he's more than just a rebel figure, but a dedicated American. And he's laid his life on the line many times to defend that constitution and that way of life that he has, uh, again, made a reputation by challenging uh, and attacking later. Now, whenever the Civil War begins, and again, we don't want to get into too much of the, the causes of it, uh, Lee is so respected and so valued that he's offered full command of the Union Army to put down the Southern Rebellion. Lee uh, is not quiet about his feelings about this. Lee says early on that secession, in his opinion, would be a calamity of epic proportions for this country. To separate from the country, to dissolve what we worked so hard to create from 1776 onward was something he did not want to be a part of. We call this union or unionism. The idea that preserving the Union, despite our differences, is the most important thing. That's why the Northern Army will be called the Union Army. But Lee wasn't quiet about that. He wrote that in a letter to his son. It would be a calamity. And he's right. By the end of this war, millions will be wounded and about 700,000 people, that's 2% of America's total population, will be dead. To give you some idea what that figure translates to today, compared to 1865, if we lost 2% of our population today in a war, especially a war against ourselves, that would be about 7.5 million people dead. So there's nothing small here, and there's certainly nothing easy about the Civil War. And Lee says that. You know, whenever Lee was offered the commission to take over the Union Army, uh, he said something like, I don't care if I owned 4 million slaves. I'd give them all up to preserve the Union. But at the end of the day, and this sort of shows you where the country is at the time, uh, he doesn't believe he could ever raise uh, a hand in anger toward his home state of Virginia. Again, people still viewed individual state residency as their primary allegiance rather than a national residency. So it does go to show how the world's kind of getting smaller, right? The world's globalizing, but we as Americans are, are caring about uh, state differences less and less. That being said, I'm from Pittsburgh, and if you ask people here, they tell you Philadelphia in the same state is almost a different country. That's a little bit of a regional rivalry, but at any rate, um, that's true, and that's true everywhere. I mean, go to Texas. Yikes. Um, they'll tell you East, East Texas and West Texas are not the same thing. But that's very true here. 
And it's for that reason that Lee decides that fighting for the Union, fighting for the United States, is not for him. Now, there's an interesting comment he makes there about slavery. Uh, if he had four million slaves, he'd give them all up. He tells Preston Blair this, uh, an important, prominent American official. And slavery, you have to understand, is a critical part of the Southern economy, but it's much more than that. I mean, I want you to think of this. If you look at the total investments of the South on the eve of the Civil War, I'm talking everything from investment in markets to land ownership to uh, home ownership, uh, something like... 50% of the entire southern economy is tied up in slaves. I mean, slaves are an important commodity to own. You want to buy them cheap and sell them high. So I want you to imagine if there was an, an effort uh, to uh, eliminate today, for example, home ownership. Just take it right away. And you have all your money tied up in your home. You'd be willing to fight to keep it. Uh, there's a lot of money tied up in slavery. That's important, too. So whenever Lee says, if I had four million slaves... I'd give them all up to preserve the Union. Uh, that's a big statement. That's a big statement. That being said, however, he does turn his back on the Union. He does turn his back on his country. And he allies with a new rebel country, a new country in revolt. The, what they call, Confederate States of America. Now, Abraham Lincoln was very clear about this from the beginning of the war. He doesn't view the Confederacy as a real country simply because the Constitution doesn't allow a state to secede. It's illegal. So he says, call yourself a confederacy, elect officers, elect a president, whatever, but just know that you're not. You are still our states, just in rebellion. And boy, that really had to chap the South. Uh, but this is the world Lee goes into. Now now we'll get into, I think, the, the piece-by-piece uh, history of Lee's military career. And again, we'll try not to make it the bulk of the show, but I think you see a lot about the man and his legend uh, really revealed during this time period. One of the great misconceptions about the war is that Robert E. Lee is in command from the very beginning, and he's this dominant figure. The reality is he isn't. Not at all. At the beginning of the war, he's given a task that is not exactly enviable. It is to go into western Virginia, what is today West Virginia, uh, and defeat the Union Army stationed there. The campaign of Lee's in western Virginia, again, really the first campaign of his Confederate life, is a disaster. The big battle that occurs is a, uh, the Battle of Cheap Mountain. There's the Battle of Philippi as well, one of the earliest battles of the war. But the one thing they all have in common in 1861 is that Robert E. Lee is losing, and losing badly. His men begin to call him Granny Lee, Newspapers criticize him for being indecisive, uh, for being too passive. I mean, this will be laughable in two years to hear people talking that way. But he's run out of Western Virginia, and this really allows, through some pretty tricky politics, for the birth of the 34th state, West Virginia. They secede from the secession. Think of that. New state. We still have West Virginia today. But that's Lee's earliest experience, and it's a rough one. I mean, it's bad. And Lee will sort of integrate himself back into the Army of Northern Virginia under the command of a general named Joe Johnston and sort of just be a uh, second-in-command. He'll just be a subordinate figure. Now, as we get to 1862, we see a major campaign occur we call the Peninsula Campaign, led by a Union Army general named uh, George B. McClellan, the young Napoleon. And McClellan's whole you know idea for the campaign, a campaign's a series of battles, with an objective, is to capture Richmond by moving south of it on, on the Potomac River, landing, 
in southern Virginia and marching northward to Richmond. Well, he'll be stopped there. He'll be stopped largely because of his own hesitancy to fight. But here's what's really important for our story. And again, I, I made a really big, complicated uh, story very simple. There's a battle that occurs called Seven Pines. In that battle, uh, and it's typically a very nondescript battle, the commanding officer of the Army of Northern Virginia, Joe Johnston, is wounded. He doesn't die, but he's wounded beyond repair. And this allows Robert E. Lee, our topic, our figure, to take full command of the Army of Northern Virginia, and he never gives it up. So for the remainder of the war, the Army of Northern Virginia is spearheaded by and led by Robert E. Lee. And to this point, he wouldn't be much of a historical figure for us. I mean, very few people would even know who he is, if anyone. The Civil War is filled with uh, generals that only specialists know of. Lee would be one of them. But this is the game changer. This puts Lee in command, full command of the Army of Northern Virginia, uh, and allows him to really implement his policies and his strategies the way he wants. Now, one thing you'll see from Lee, time and time and time again, is that his legend and his reputation will grow, seemingly after every battle. And the reason is uh, because of what he's able to do with very little. To give you some perspective on this, the Army of Northern Virginia is undersupplied, uh, they're outgunned, uh, and the Union Army has many, many more men than they do. Despite that, they keep racking up victories. Now, Lee's men, again, the men of the Army of Northern Virginia, will say a lot of things about him. They'll say he's uh, supernatural or paranormal in some way. They say that he knows what the enemy's going to do before they'll do it. And despite these huge disadvantages they face throughout the war, time and again, Lee comes out on top. You can look at that from the perspective of a normal person, I guess, just an average casual viewer, and you say, maybe he did know something special. Maybe there was something incredible about the man. But from the historian's view, he was nothing more than a first-rate military mind. You have to remember, the Civil War is unlike any war in American history. Because we're not fighting a foreign army or a distant alien legion of some kind. This is an army that's fighting itself. And Lee has spent his life in that army. So whenever Lee faces off with George B. McClellan, for example, whenever he squares off with a guy like Ambrose Burnside, uh, or Joe Hooker, whoever it is on the Union side, Lee doesn't know what they're going to do before they do it because he's uh, clairvoyant. He knows because he knows these men. I mean, when you talk about a real student of the game, Lee is the figure I want you to have in your mind. He knows them. He knows their strategies. He knows their tendencies. He knows how they'd interact. He's fought with some of them in Mexico. He's seen it in real time. But he knows their temperament. So what Lee's doing is not, again, knowing what they're going to do before they do it. But he's making calculated, educated decisions based on his opponent's tendencies on how they're going to lead their armies. So that's really important for us to, uh, for us to understand. Now, if you ever go on a Civil War road trip, and I encourage you to do it. I had the uh, the privilege of getting a grant to do one a few years ago. Uh, and I actually did it, uh, this shows you how far grant money goes, uh, in a rental car. It was a Pikachu yellow Fiat 500. Um, you talk about almost getting beat up several times. Tried driving on a Civil War battlefield in the South in a Fiat 500. Um, but that was me. 
Thank goodness it had a Tennessee license plate. It has Southern license plate. But at any rate, um, I went all through Virginia, and one of the great things about it is um, there's a certain part of Virginia, just outside of D.C., just south of it, where there are several battlefields very close together. And the reason there is is because, again, this is the middle of a tactical war. The strategy in the Eastern Theater largely was capture the flag. If the Confederates capture Washington, D.C., that goes a long way toward ending the war. If the uh, Union Army captures Richmond, the Confederate capital, then same thing. So these armies were maneuvering time and again within about a 50-mile radius of each other in and around these two capitals. So there's battles at places like Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, the Wilderness, Spotsylvania, all literally within 15 minutes of each other. But this is the area where Lee really, again, builds his, his, his reputation. And we'll talk about some of these high notes uh, just for the sake of, of advancing this narrative. In the winter of 1862, you're looking at December, there's a major battle about halfway between Washington and Richmond at a place called Fredericksburg. Very cool place to visit. But Fredericksburg is a battlefield. Again, it's not an open field. It's not an empty space. These are towns. People live there. It's well known that there's a large stone wall at the top of a hill. We call this Marie's Heights. And both armies believe, especially the Union, if they can get to that stone wall first, they can put their men behind it, which will cause the enemy, in this case Lee, to charge up the hill into uh, terrible gunfire, and it will just be a, 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 a rout of epic proportions. Lee gets there first, and the Union Army tries to storm the hill to take the position, and the Confederate Army just mows them down. One man who was there said this was not a battle, it was, quote, simply murder. And when you're there, on top of Marie's Heights, you can see that. But from the uh, winter of 1862 into the spring of 63, this is basically the setup of the army. Lee's Confederate Army is in Fredericksburg, Virginia. The Union Army, now under the command of a man named Joseph Hooker, is on the outside. They're going to do battle in the spring of 1863. And this is a really interesting battle because Lee has about 75,000 men compared to about 125 or 130,000 Union troops. So he's terribly outnumbered. They meet at a crossroads we call Chancellorsville. Now, why I'm going into detail about this battle is because many believe it's Lee's master stroke. It's the time when he uh, rewrites the book on 19th century Napoleonic warfare. So here's the idea. Lee's army is surrounded, nearly surrounded, uh, in a half-moon shape by Joe Hooker's Union army. At that point, things are looking bad. If Lee would have hunkered down, made a stand... Maybe he wins, maybe he doesn't, probably not. Time is not on his side. We would expect that. And I think almost any other general at the time would have done that, but Lee does something amazing. He actually cuts his army in half. Think of that. He's already badly outnumbered. And he further cuts his army in half and sends half of his army under the command of a man named Thomas Jonathan Jackson, Stonewall Jackson, uh, south and then uh, back north to the rear of the Union Army. It's done secretly. And the, and the gamble was he hoped that the remaining force that was already surrounded would hold out until this gamble paid off. And sure enough, it does. Stonewall Jackson's men go behind the Union Army, unexpectedly rush in and crush them. This is the Battle of Chancellorsville. Uh, it was an incredible gamble. Uh, it was a gamble of epic proportions. Lee does it, and Lee's effective. 
this will go down as in history as Lee's great moment, I think, at Chancellorsville. Um, because he's basically undefeated at this point. Not totally. Of course, we talked about the West Virginia campaign, and some battles just have no winner. But at Chancellorsville, Lee scores big. And people realize whatever legend or reputation he was building is about to expand tenfold by that point. Chancellorsville is a great Confederate victory. Uh, it's overshadowed to a degree, I think, by the fact that Stonewall Jackson will be killed, not even during the battle, but shot by his own men on accident. Uh, and that will cripple Lee's offensive mind, I think, for a lot of the rest of the war. But that's what Lee does. And again, it's maneuvers like that that really, I think, set him apart from a lot of people, uh, even commanders of his own time. Now, from Lincoln's perspective, the uh, the President of the United States, he can't beat Lee. Uh, and it's driving him very mad because he knows that Lee's undersupplied, he's undermanned, and if you capture that army... The rebellion's basically over. I mean, if there's no if there's no rebellion, then there's no chance. And he can't find a general aggressive enough to do it. The brilliant thing about Lee is that he understands this war with a almost uh, a historian's mind. He sees a much bigger picture than just battles. What he sees is a way to win the war. Okay, um, without much more fighting. He knows if you're going to win this war, it's not going to be about winning a hundred more battles. Because eventually, they become what we call Pyrrhic victories. You just run out of men. But it's about scoring major battles at political points to turn the tide of this war. So here's Lee's entire philosophy of winning the war. As it turns out, it's brilliant. But we're moving into 1863. And here's what he says. He says, if I'm going to win this war, I need to win it the way the Americans want independence from the British. If you remember our discussion of the Revolution, the Americans didn't defeat the British Empire. They didn't bring down the Empire. The Empire was still only growing. But they made the war seem unwinnable for the British, or not worth it. And more importantly, at the end of the uh, American Revolution, they made the war seem so expensive and so pointless for the British to keep fighting that they voted out the political parties that wanted to keep fighting and voted in a peace delegation, the Whig Party in this case. That's what Lee wants to do. He knows the way you end this war is not through uh, a multitude of victories, but you make the war seem unwinnable for the North. It's that simple. And in 1864, there's going to be a presidential election. Abraham Lincoln is going to run again. And if he loses, he would lose to a peace candidate. So this is Lee's entire philosophy. Win a few strategic wars in strategic places, make the war seem endless, expensive, and terrible, with no end in sight, convince northern voters to give up, just let the south go. That's all you had to do. Lee knew this. And again, this is far more than just mil military strategy, I think. And that became his M.O. for the rest of the war. But he knew that 1864 was that linchpin. If you didn't convince northern voters to end the war before the 1864 elections, then the whole thing was lost. I mean, that's incredible for a military commander to have to exert that kind of control. But Lee does it. So is he effective? Well, here's how the story goes. 1863 rolls around with a battle called Gettysburg. Lee, for really one of the first times in the war, is not the first man on the scene. What's different about this battle 
is that it's fought not on southern soil, as the overwhelming majority of battles have been, with the exception of a few, but Lee invades Pennsylvania, a northern state. And it's there that he believes a strategic victory at a very, I think, well-placed location would scare so many northerners that they would demand the war end now, before it's on their doorstep next. This campaign in Pennsylvania, his northern campaign, is really intriguing. Because there's still a lot of questions we have unanswered about it. I mean, Gettysburg is a nothing town. It's a town of 3,000 people. It happens there basically because there's nine different roads that go into it. Lee thought it would be a nice place to rally, and they happened to run into some Union forces. But there was a lot of people in Pennsylvania who had no idea where he was going, but they knew he was there. In Philadelphia, they began to panic. They thought he might come and sack the city. Uh, in the central part of the state, Harrisburg believed they were under attack, and they were attacked. Harrisburg's a major railroad hub. The Civil War is all about rivers and railroads for the most part. Even in Pittsburgh, all the way in the west, there was a panic about where Lee would be. Uh, they developed a military department called the Department of the Monongahela. They built 30-some forts around the city of Pittsburgh. It was where most of the uh, weapons were manufactured for the Union Army. So it was a strategic location. One interesting theory was even that Lee would move into the coal country of central Pennsylvania. Uh, coal really was the, the fuel that drove the Union war effort and trying to light the mines on fire. I mean, if he had ignited one of those mines in 1863, uh, it might still be burning today. So there's a lot of fun what-ifs in Lee's life. Uh, but no, the battle happens at Gettysburg. It's a meeting engagement. It happens by chance. Lee, for the first time, doesn't get to pick where he wants to put his men. He's last on the scene, and he'll be defeated. It's the single biggest battle in the history of the Western Hemisphere, and the first time that Lee is really truly defeated on the field of battle as a commanding officer. The war will retreat back into Virginia. Abraham Lincoln will bring in Ulysses S. Grant in 1864 as his new general, and then the clock begins to tick on Lee. Lee was a military engineer for most of his life. When he gets to the city of Petersburg, he begins to dig trenches, trench warfare, as a way of making the war last longer. If he fought in one pitch battle, he might lose. His men begin to become very, I think, critical of him. They call him the king of spades. You know, a spade, a shovel, dig a hole, dig a trench. But Lee's doing whatever he can. By the end of the war, Lee has to make the decision. Uh, do I keep fighting the war or just give it up? Because he knows when he surrenders, the Confederacy and this rebellion is basically over. And he has two options. Again, one is, again, giving up. The other is taking to the mountains of West, uh, West Virginia, making this a guerrilla war, an insurgent war, and his men wanted to do that. Lee has the foresight to say no, he's not going to. And this is the end of the Civil War, but it's not the end of Lee's life. The cleanup of the Civil War is very interesting. <clears throat> Again, we're trying to get to this point of when does he go from a traitor to the United States, treasonous, to almost this anti-hero, if you would. Maybe even more than that. Maybe a legitimate hero in the minds of some people. In the National Cathedral in Washington, in the stained glass windows, there's one completely dedicated to Lee's life. I kid you not. And that's a church. So where does this happen? Well, after the war, Lee's uh, family home, again, Arlington House, outside of D.C., is captured. And in one of the more devious strokes of Lincoln's life, he makes that land, confiscates it, makes into a cemetery. So if Lee wants to live in his mansion again, he can look out and see just an endless sea of tombstones wrought by his rebellion. I mean, Lincoln, we think of him as a very nice guy, but he was a very devious person. 
Uh, but that's if you go to Arlington National Cemetery, the big mansion in the middle is Lee's family mansion. Uh, Lee's not prosecuted. There's very few people prosecuted after the war. For the most part, Lincoln just told everybody to put down your guns and go home. We've killed enough. And again, by the end of this war, you're talking about 2% of American America's total population gone. Today, that'd be 7.5 million people. This is a catastrophe of epic proportions. Lee knew it going in. He said it. We recited that quote earlier in the episode. But again, we get to this question of legacy. After the war, Lee wants to retire quietly, but he's too much of a public figure. He becomes the president of what is today Washington and Lee University. He'll die in 1869. So he dies at the age of 63 years old. And that's Lee's life. And again, like so many people in this season, the person he is while he's alive, uh, I think pales in comparison to the person we make him later. My goal is not to anger Southerners with this episode. It just isn't. Uh, because I have a lot of Southern friends. Uh, a lot of my family lives in the South. They're transplants, but, you know, they count. I really don't care about that. I mean, people get really seriously offended, both North and South, by the Civil War. And it kind of goes to show you why it's still relevant. I mean, who gets offended about, you know, a discussion of the Hundred Years' War? Nobody. Uh, who gets offended about this? A lot of people. Still a sore subject. And I'm not trying to do that. And if you hate me and never want to listen again, I understand that too. Uh, but it gets to this question, and this is the important thing, this idea of who is Lee? Who is he? Is he a hero? Should he be revered as one of the great Americans? Or should he be derided for being one of the people that fought against America? Again, that saw the American experiment and tried to destroy it. Make no mistake, if the South wins that war, the United States as we know it does not exist. The experiment of republicanism, the great experiment of democracy, what men like George Washington fought for, the Constitution, all of that is gone out the window. Destroyed. If the South wins that war, the country as you know it is gone. We tried and we failed, just like everybody thought we would in Europe. It's that important. It's that important. But where do you rank Lee? How do you do it? I can't say I have the right answer. I mean, no one is right and no one is wrong. It's who can make that best case. And there are certainly many people, even in the government today, that don't view him as any problem at all. They view him as a great person. Um, I can't say he was a bad guy. Again, his belief was that this country should be uh, dissolved and that he should create his own. So these are the questions we try to answer. I don't know that we can give a definitive one in this podcast. I mean, he is a traitor. I mean, by definition, he is. But people view him sometimes uh, as being more American than anybody else. So I want you to think about Robert E. Lee. This is a really cool episode for that reason. It lets us really delve into some serious issues. Who should he be? Who should he be remembered as? We call it historical memory. And that's really up for grabs. The court of public opinion will settle this. But here on, on, on the wartime podcast, you know, all we can really do is, is maybe try and open up a few minds. Difficult subject, interesting man, no doubt. Uh, I think one of the most compelling people we'll talk about this season. Thank you for joining us. As always, visit the website, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. Go on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer or search Wartime Podcast. Go on the uh, website, bradykreitzer.com or wartimepodcast.com and send me an email. Let me know who's on the docket for next week. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.